if it's this dynamic of where they say, oh, well, my um, that other co-founder knows the number I don't, or, um, oh, I'll have to have my growth person, I have to look at, I have to go pull it up and look at the data. They don't know those numbers right off the bat. They don't wake up every day obsessively looking at those numbers, and that's, um, that's a bit of a concern. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads, and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Katie Burke, the Director of Talent and Culture here at HubSpot, and I'm joined today by Christine Tsai, founding partner of 500 Startups. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, Christine, I don't know that there's anyone on the planet who hasn't heard of 500 Startups, but just in case, give us a quick overview of what 500 Startups does, and if you wouldn't mind also, give us some context around what an accelerator does in the first place. Of course. 500 Startups is a venture capital fund. We primarily invest in companies at the seed stage. As part of the fund, we also invest in companies that go through our accelerator programs, of which we have in three different locations, Mountain View, San Francisco, and Mexico City. We were founded in 2010. We're about four and a half years old, and in that time, we've, we've certainly grown quite a bit. We have now over 50 employees across, I think, about 14 different locations around the world, of three main funds, and um, about $150 million total under management. And our 500 family, which we, we often refer to as the family, is over 1,000 investments at this point, so essentially our portfolio. And um, you were asking about kind of what, what an accelerator is? Yeah, exactly. So an accelerator is typically structured as some sort of timed program um, for startups, so maybe you know 12 weeks, four months, six months where they're in a cohort with other companies, and the size of that also ranges. And typically, the accelerators are usually where companies will get an investment from whoever's running the accelerator, if it's a fund or a program. And there is something about that accelerator program that's either hands-on or providing resources to the company. Um, And the idea is that for most companies who decide about joining an accelerator or not, it's really to help them accelerate their growth or to get help with fundraising or just get plugged into a network. It's, it's fairly uh, common these days. It's, it's, there's a proliferation of accelerators, um, certainly in Silicon Valley, but in LA, almost in a lot of different locations, even some that you wouldn't even think of in the US and, and all around the world. So it's, it's certainly, um, it's certainly uh, uh, common to see companies join an accelerator program. Absolutely. So one of the reasons I think your perspective is so valuable here is not only has your family at 500 Startups grown, uh, you know, infinitely over the last several years, but you also have an eye for growth, right? You're looking at seed stage companies. What do you look for to identify a high growth company and what kind of characteristics do you see in entrepreneurs that really have high value propositions for growth? Yes. So 500 is very bullish on growth and actually what we call it is distribution. Um, it's interesting. I'm not sure exactly how that term came up in, inside the team, um, but we've sort of started to embrace it, and we hear other founders use it. But um, we, we call it that instead of growth because we felt like growth just focuses on kind of one aspect 
of growing a company, obviously, like getting more users. And, and we feel like distribution kind of, for, you know, whether for better or for worse, it kind of encompasses the entire life cycle of really understanding your metrics, um, really understanding, um, you know, how the business model works, um, looking at how you acquire customers, testing different channels, and then, you know, importantly, also how you retain those users. Um, and so for us, like what we really look for in teams is that they have demonstrated some usage validation. Obviously, the more the better. And I think we hold the same standards for companies that are going through both our accelerator program as well as any that we just make a, a direct seed investment to. In fact, there actually are a lot of companies who go through our accelerator that are, you know, they look actually a lot like maybe seed companies or you know, they potentially could be further along. You know, in the last batch, we had a couple companies who had come into the batch with already a million dollars in revenue, mm-hmm. um, but they wanted to come through the program because they just really wanted that help with growth and, and you know, figuring out new channels or like how they could increase their growth rate further, figure out you know, how they could expand to other, you know, other channels. Um, so we like to see that they've already demonstrated some traction and that they have a good eye for distribution, like they, they're prioritizing it. They're very you know, passionate about it. They're not the type of founders who think that they'll just go viral or they don't think that spending money on marketing is frivolous or useless. Um, and it's, it's in a market that we particularly are interested in, that we care about. And we think that um, you know, with help from our team and you know, particularly our distribution team, that they, could, they have a lot of potential. You know, there certainly are companies who've been around for a while and maybe are showing some traction, but you know, we may have said no because we just didn't think it was a good fit or we didn't think that they were going to get very far. So um, so we certainly look for it in the teams. And um, and we, you know, we, it's, it's something that we really kind of preach in the program. Like a lot of the content in the 16 weeks that they're with us is around growth and distribution as well as other, other general topics that are relevant to running a company. Yeah, so it honestly seems like distribution expertise has become sort of a, a hallmark of your brand. Talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit about what that distribution dating looks like, right? So how do you, other than traction, early traction, what do you look for and what are leading indicators of a company that's really committed to kind of long-term distribution and aligned with your philosophy around what growth looks like? One thing that really stands out from even that initial meeting with them, if we're, say, interviewing them, is if they really have a good sense of their numbers what they know works, what they know doesn't work, and they're able to at least speak to things that they haven't tried or not. So we have a lot of companies come in and then, you know, we ask them sometimes numbers that I think aren't particularly obscure. Like we'll, we'll ask them, you know, how much, how much money did you bring in last month? Or, you know, how many, um, how much did your users grow from month over month in the last three months? And um, the, the companies that I think stand out in terms of ones where we think fall into that bucket that you described, they know that um, almost immediately. And another another even better sign is that both founders or however many people on the team, you know, say it's two to three founders, they all know that, they all know those numbers. If it's if it's this dynamic of where they say, oh, well, my um, that other co-founder knows the number I don't, or, um, oh, I'll have to have my growth person, I have to look at, I have to go pull it up and look at the data. They don't know those numbers right off the bat. They don't wake up every day obsessively looking at those numbers, and that's um, that's a bit of a concern. Um, but you know, in some cases, the companies just aren't trained to do that. And you know, even if they don't quite get that initially, by going through our program or working with us, they start to develop that hygiene. 
Um, but certainly a good sign is, like I said, they, they already know their numbers very well. Um, they've tested out different um, channels or, you know, both internally within the product, like making changes as well as external channels. Um, they have a sense of what works and doesn't work. Um, but I think if they're just constantly trying to iterate and, and test out um, different things and they have that patience to, to figure that out, then that's a good sign. And, and they also understand that growth and distribution is not just, um, it's not really actually very glamorous in terms of there's not going to be this one magic solution that just skyrockets their growth. It, they understand that, you know, it takes time. It involves a lot of this testing and iterating, looking at numbers and kind of, you know, cohort analysis and seeing, like, what works. So um, so that usually, it, it's not always apparent in the interview, but usually um, the one, the companies that stand out, they just, they know that stuff like the back of their hand. That's a great example. One of the things I really liked that you wrote about was the importance of a good founder interaction. So whether or not you choose to invest or not, you really want companies to come away with a good experience. Talk to us a little bit about why that's so important to you and how you make that kind of vision a reality for your team. Certainly. I think you're, you're, you might be speaking to when um, companies say come in an interview, they you know may not get an offer, but they still come away feeling like it was a great experience. Is that what you're... That's exactly to? right. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's important to us because, um, you know, we want founders, it's a very small world, um, you know, people, founders will talk to other founders, um, certainly, you know, with, with social media, people will tweet out or share their thoughts, and, um, but aside from just, we don't want to look bad, it's just more like, I guess it's just part of our brand that we are, um, you know, we, we all feel kind of humble, and, and even for looking at how 500 has grown in the last four and a half years, um, it's funny for me to say this, and I'll just you know put myself out there. Sometimes you know when I meet companies and they say, oh, "I really want to be in 500." I've heard so many great things. Um, my gut reaction is oftentimes, like, "Really?" Or <laughs> you know, it's it's not like, "Well, yeah, of course you you should want to be in 500." Um, but it's it's really like, "Wow, they they actually really want to be part of our you know our network and what we've built." It's um, and I, I just I'm still in awe of it and. Um, and I think that's reflected in how we treat the founders. Um, you know, I've talked to a number of companies who, um, who've said that their experience here, even just the moment they step into the office, they immediately feel welcomed. Um, you know, it's not all, it's not always like that everywhere you go. Um, you know, oftentimes it might be, they don't feel welcomed or they feel, um, like it's some sort of competitive environment or that even in the interviews, the questions we ask them or the demeanor, kind of the, the body language is very, um, either judgmental or kind of asking questions just to just to sound smart, um, but we we don't you know we just care to be more authentic and connect to the founders, and you know we do have a number of companies that come interview several times um, before they get into the batch, so that's why we feel like it's key. You know maybe a company's not ready right now, but in the next batch they might be ready, and we want to keep an eye on them um, and build that relationship. So that's why we feel like it it matters to still give them a positive experience because they can be sometimes our strongest advocates and um, we certainly don't want to drive people away. In some cases, that interview may be the only interaction they have with the 500 team, um, so we don't want it to be a bad one. Yeah, that's something that both of our brands definitely have in common. We view any candidate who interviews here as a future potential employee, a future potential customer, a future potential partner, and so we invest heavily in that as well, which is why it uh, stuck out to me. One of the other things that stuck out that I really liked was on your personal blog was the importance of staying humble as you grow. Talk to me a little bit about why that matters and how you keep everyone honest about that in spite of massive growth. I, I think that being humble is... 
I guess it's something that um, the reason why you know we think it's important is that it keeps you hungry. I think if you start to feel too confident or you know that you you don't you know you're so far ahead of the pack or or you think oh well everyone loves us we're awesome then you just start to approach things differently it comes out in your brand and your interactions with founders um, or not even just founders other investors and um, so obviously there is some you know some sense of confidence that you want to portray and you you want to commu- you want to communicate that because you know we want founders to think we're awesome um, you know, we, we, I would never approach a founder and say, yeah, 500 is okay. I mean, it might not be as good as this. Um, so certainly not like that, but it's just more 500 is awesome. We can really help you and, you know, understand it, it has to be a good fit for you. But um, we're really excited about your company and we've shown we've helped a lot of companies. Um, and, you know, so it's just more, um, you're still, humbleness does not mean you don't have confidence, but it's just more the internal, I guess, the mentality among the team that um, that we still have while we have done a lot there's still so much more we haven't done there's so much uncharted territory and that we can't just rest on our laurels and think that we'll just get all the deal flow or you know like everyone will just like come to us we still have to work very hard to go after markets we haven't been able to reach or companies or you know partners or or whatever it is so um and i guess that's i mean i think most of the people on our team just as people are like that, I mean, maybe that makes us too nice or, or whatnot. I mean, but I, I guess it's just something that I think keeps us grounded. And it actually helps us, I think, better relate to our companies, especially the ones that are in our batch. Um, you know, a lot of them will think, you know, working with our team, you know, in the first couple of weeks, they're very excited, they're nervous, like, oh my gosh, they're in the office with the 500 team. But then, you know, we're with them for four months and it starts to feel much more like a close relationship and they realize just how down to earth we are. Um, and, you know, we don't kind of give ourselves errors about, oh, we're VCs and um, we're you know, f- flying around the world. You know, we're always available. Um, you know, I was taking a call with the founder a couple days ago and I was trying to put my kids to bed. And um, I just, I, you know, I could have just said, you know what, I, I really can't talk to you right now. Uh, maybe I should have. <laughs> But I just felt sort of that urgency that, you know, these founders don't have downtime. And for them, it was a very urgent issue. And I just, um, I don't think I would do that all the time, but it's just more things like that, kind of really being authentic and humble, I think are really part of our DNA. That's a great example. So there's a lot of talk in the Valley and elsewhere, frankly, in the venture community about women in tech. And one of the things I admire most about 500 is that while lots of people are talking about it, 500 sort of walking the walk. Talk to us a little bit about what you've done there, your commitment to not only having uh, many people, many females on your investment team, but also really investing in female founders at the company level. Talk to us a little bit about how you came to that approach and how that's become part of your DNA as a brand as well. Yeah, I think... And from the very beginning, diversity has always been um, very important to us. And for us, it, it, it wasn't just it wasn't just like a you know lip service or just like a poster on the wall saying we like diversity. You know, we think diversity is great. Um, I think a lot of it stems from you know our team doesn't really look like the typical VC. Um, you know, we we all you know came from different backgrounds. Um, none of us, even you know, even Dave, like none of us had worked really in another VC or as a, you know, investor for professional investor. Um, it was mostly maybe, um, like personally or largely like we had worked as operators like at companies. Um, so in that sense, it's, you know, we probably all faced a little bit of skepticism or rejection that, oh, well, you know, you've never done venture before. You've never raised a fund. Um, but so it, it probably, you know, a lot of it came from that and just kind of like our, 
own personal perspectives, but we always felt that, um, you know, a lot of founders are men and specifically probably, you know, white male, or there's this stereotype that it's young white male or, um, from Ivy leagues, that's sort of the, you know, the, the stereotype of founders. And it's really, it's, you know, we're missing out if we only focus on that. It's, it's really, we're not diversifying. I mean, if you think about it in the investment sense, but, um, you know, we felt that it's important because talent exists everywhere and it's not just one type of person. Um, and it shouldn't be just one type of person or one race, gender, um, you know, school, if they went to school, um, country, it really talent comes from, you know, all over the place. And it's up to us to really kind of look past the bias that we have and, um, kind of the patterns that we see and, and go out aggressively and, and try to attract people of all different, you know, that look all different colors and shapes and sizes, as well as businesses, because um, that I think is that that I think is is challenging for for VCs because they may be looking at what business has worked well for other, you know, in the past or what they think you know sort of fits that mold. Um, and so, like in the last four and a half years, you know, like like you mentioned, we've done a lot to invest in companies that have women as founders and CEOs. And for us, it wasn't, it's not just to, it, there was no kind of charitable aspect to it because I think that's also doing a disservice to these amazing companies. It's really about recognizing that these companies can make money and they can do really well. And just because let's say they are women or they are you know, from another country that doesn't somehow limit their potential. Um, and I think the only way you can really do that is to also have a team that is looking at these companies that is kind of that, um, that is sort of that target as well. Um, I'm, I'm sure there probably are firms that have mostly men on the team that have invested in a lot of female founded companies, but I'm, my guess is it's far few and in between. I think it's, you know, if you have more women on the team on the other side of the table, I think that helps create that dynamic and bringing more women into the fold. Um, and that, you know, again, doesn't just does not just apply to women. It applies to racial background and um, you know international, all sorts of kind of aspects of diversity. So we've tried to do a lot um, intentionally and just like building it within our team that um, we want to bring in more women. And if, like you said, it's there's a lot of talk in the valley, and especially with things going on, um, this is always kind of a, a charged topic, and um, for better or for worse. But we're doing at least what we can to actually walk the walk. <laughs> Absolutely. So I loved your example of saying that most of the folks on your team had never been quote unquote professional investors. I love that. What do rookies see in the investment world that professionals often miss? Um, I'm sorry, what was the, what are, so what, you know, so your team has actually been inside companies building them. So you were at Google and you were at YouTube and many of your uh, fellow investors were sort of in the same boat. Right. What do folks who haven't been professional investors see um, from their experience as operators that, you know, folks who have been kind of in an ivory tower investing for decades might miss? Mm -hmm. I think they probably just better understand the how founders get their hands dirty, how products are built, how they're um, brought to market. Obviously, the perspective is also a bit different if you came from, let's say, you, you had founded companies and so you were even more... Um, you even more have been in the founder's shoes versus, you know, for me, I joined Google um, pretty early, but it was not really a startup at that point, even though I felt like it was startup-y. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, I had been at Google and YouTube for quite a long time and it actually worked on, um, you know, tech products and had worked on a lot of products that startups had used. So 
Um, so I think just being hands-on with these products and understanding technology, um, at least for tech investors, and just being in that space where you are very like hands-on working with these products is a huge advantage. There certainly are investors who are professional investors who only were professional investors their whole life, and they never worked um, in an operating role. Fred Wilson's a great example of that, um, where he, I don't, I think he was in venture capital actually his entire career. Um, so there are certainly exceptions, but I do think that, that it is a kind of a trend now where there are a lot of operators turned VCs, either they're starting their own fund or they're going into existing firms without having that VC background. But I think there's starting to be this recognition that, you know what, um, you know, that's actually more critical at this stage versus having years of finance experience. Absolutely. So you mentioned your time at Google and YouTube. Talk to us a little bit about just kind of the biggest lesson you learned with your time at Google and uh, maybe about uh, as it relates to growth. Yeah, um, I guess there were a couple thoughts I had on that. So I certainly, when I joined Google, I think it was, it might have been a little bit under a thousand people. Um, I mean, compared to where it is now, it's, it's obviously has grown a lot. And I think during some of the time I was there, it grew like a lot, um, especially I, I think there were a couple of things, and these kind of relate to how the company is run. One, I think, you know, as your company grows, whether you're growing from, you know, five people to 10 people to 20 to 50, and, you know, with 500, the experience was growing it from, you know, the founders to um, to now 50-plus people. But I think it's very easy to kind of get lax on culture, compromise, you know, compromise on it, especially as you're hiring people. It, it can be harder to maintain that kind of quality control, but I think whatever you can possibly do, don't do that because, um, you know, it is going to be a little bit more difficult to maintain, um, to you know, maintain that uh, that culture as you grow. But I think you know, as much as you can, just don't um, treat each you know potential hire with the same standards as you did when you were first trying to hire for the company. And the other thing is, um, and this is one thing that I think, I don't know what it's like now at Google, but when I was there, you know, they kind of really prided themselves internally on transparency and just general openness in, of information. And I think that's actually a very good principle. Um, you know, there was a lot that was posted publicly, um, I mean, within the company. So things like OKRs, you could view uh, almost anybody's OKRs in, in the entire company. There were certainly regular rituals among different teams, especially the, the, what I saw from the product team was, you know, sending meeting notes to the entire product team. Um, even, you know, they seem mundane, but it's just sharing that information. You could easily find this and you could easily just contact someone on another team and say, Hey, I was curious, you know, get your take on this or want to meet up and like to hear about what you're working on. And that was normal. I actually don't think it's like that everywhere. Um, but I think even in that time where Google was growing like insanely quickly, I never really had that feeling that information was starting to get locked down or, or access was blocked. I mean, obviously what you communicate to employees or what level of information is shared is very different as the company grows. Um, but I, I think that they've always held that principle of kind of transparency and open communication um, as the company grew. And I think you, it, it's a good example of how you can do that. Um, a lot of people think you can't, you have to start kind of hiding information or not communicating it. but. Actually, I think it helps. It helped the company operate more efficiently during that time of growth, just maintaining that um, openness. We totally agree. We have a saying around here from our culture code deck that sunlight's the best disinfectant, and I think that rings true at Google still today as it does here at HubSpot. So that's a great example. 
Yep. <laughs> Two final questions uh, that are a little more uh, quirky. What's the weirdest metric you've heard a founder talk about or track when they came in for an interview? Um, so this, this was, um, it's not as weird when you know what the company does, but I think one of the strangest metrics was like number of cows tracked on the, on their platform. And so this was a company that's building like software for farmers to track their livestock. So, um, so when I say that, I think it's not as weird, but I've never heard, it's kind of a hard one to top. Usually it's like, you know, visitors or, you know, subscriptions, active users, sort of typical metrics. But um, I think there's was number of cows. <laughs> yeah, weekly active cows doesn't seem like a metric that is going to be uh, popular anytime soon. That's a great example. Yeah. And then <laughs> finally, your bio says that you herd many pugs. What does that actually mean in practice? Oh, herding pugs. Yes. Um, I, have a, I have a pug. I've, I've loved pugs my entire life. And they are very unique dogs. Um, they are very stubborn and just do whatever they want and they're proud of it. And um, I, I think the, the common expression is hurting cats. So if, obviously if you can imagine um, hurting cats or trying to get them to do what you want is difficult, they'll just run away. Um, and I, I kind of felt like, oh, well, hurting cats, I'm not a, a more of a pug fan. So I, I just sort of changed it to hurting pugs. Um, but I guess that kind of refers to trying to get the team on the same page or trying to get them to um, kind of be at their best. And I, I feel like, um, I actually think when I was at Google, I won, there was some sort of awards that, you know, like team awards, like joke awards, but I got the hurting cats award, <laughs> um, because one of my roles there was, um, trying to do a lot of the engagement work for the, the publisher base, um, which is when I worked on AdSense. So as you can imagine, like everybody on the team across from product engineering, um, operations all wanted to communicate to the, the publisher base. And it was just kind of a mess where you know, the operations team would want to upsell this email, the product team would want to you know, communicate this new feature. So my, uh, one of the roles I had was to just kind of maintain all that communication mm -hmm. to the, the existing publisher base and like how we marketed to that user base. And um, so I felt like that sort of stuck with me, I guess, maybe um, just trying to make sure everybody's on, um, you know, aligned and the communication was, was good. Um, and I feel like even at 500 now, that's a, a lot of what I do, I think just because we're so global and it's easy to misconstrue an email or people do something and someone else doesn't know about it. So I've been trying to, um, make sure that the team operates smoothly, uh, which is a challenge again, cause we're, we're growing so quickly and we don't always sit down and think about things like process or you know, operations and how we scale, but, um, it's one of the things I've been trying to improve. So hurting a lot of global pugs. <laughs> I like that expression. I think that's uh, accurate here as well. Well, Christine, we so appreciate you coming on. It was great to have you and great hearing your perspective on growth and distribution. Really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Christine. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. You can find all the previous episodes on iTunes. Just search for The Growth Show. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a quick review. Also, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you, our listeners. So we're running a quick survey over the next few weeks. Check out bit.ly backslash growth show survey and tell us what you think. It will help inform upcoming episodes and we'd love to hear more about what you're enjoying and what you're not. Hey, Christine, how's it going? Good. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. We're so excited to have you. Oh, likewise.
We really appreciate you taking the time. We're, uh, everyone's really fired up to have you on. Oh, oh great. <laughs> hope I don't, uh, hope I impress. <laughs> In a world where growth can only be supplanted by more growth, what are you going to do?